The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. Well, when I was a kid, right, we, um, I can remember during Christmas traveling from Knoxville, Tennessee, which were, where I grew up, go Vols, to my grandparents' place in Arkansas. Okay, it was like clockwork. Every single year, every single Christmas, we knew that we were going to be at their place. I mean, that's just the way it was. It was so ingrained to us that we were going to spend Christmas at their place that we didn't even think about Christmas somewhere else other than our grandparents. I mean, it would be absurd to think about doing Christmas anywhere else than my grandparents' place in Arkansas. And when I got into high school, you know, we, I was on a basketball team, so we had basketball practice and games during the Christmas break. And so we would go for, you know, the 24-hour round trip to Arkansas and back. We would do that on like a two-day weekend just to be in Arkansas, my grandparents' place, for Christmas Day. And I know it sounds kind of silly, but that's just the way it was. I mean, we didn't do anything else. That's just the way it was. We were at their place for Christmas. There was no question in, in our minds growing up that our grandparents' place was what the place for Christmas. I'm sure we all have memories kind of like that, right? We all have memories. It might not have been Arkansas, right? It might not have been my grandparents' place, but you probably have a place that you, growing up, you knew that you would spend Christmas. As kids, we were all about it. Not the traveling so much, you know, are we there yet, right? But, but we knew, man, when we get there, Grandma is going to spoil us. We're going to give chop wood with Grandpa. You know, whatever that was it, was, it was, it became nostalgic. It was just this place where we would not imagine doing anything else during Christmas. The pot-bellied wood stove, right? Remember all those memories from, from growing up at Grandpa's and Grandma's house? The place. In fact, some of you are leaving this weekend to go to that place whatever that place is for you. School's getting out Friday, I think, for most everybody, and you're getting in the car and you're traveling to that place, whatever that place is for you. And because of years and years of tradition, that place has, has become sacred in a certain sense. Like you would not imagine being anywhere else. It's, it's sacred to you. Now what's funny is when a wife who has a sacred place marries a husband who could care less about that place. In fact, begins to like think that place is not sacred, but perhaps even de- devil, devil possessed. Uh, yeah, and you laugh because you know it's true. You're like, well, are we going again to that place? You know, but but you love your wife, or and it, might, it could work the other way around too. You know, uh, you love your spouse, and so you endure going to their special place, their sacred place, because you love them. But you might not really want to be there. But so th- I want you to think about that place, that sacred place for me. Pettigene Mountain, Arkansas. Where was it for you? Think about that place. Whether you're in middle school or high school this morning, or even younger, and you've only been going to that place a few years, or maybe you're 50, and you've been going to that place for 50 years, or maybe you're older, and that place is your place where people come, where your kids come and your grandkids come. But there's something, even if it's your own place where you spend every day of your life, there's something special about your place when Christmas comes. So I want you to think about that place. I want you to picture that place in your mind. What would your reaction be if someone showed up one day and told you that place is not going to be around much longer? In fact, you will never have another place like that again. 
Now, I know some spouses that might be like, you know, woohoo, you know. But most of us, that could, be, that could be fighting words. What do you mean? You're taking away my place, my sacred place, where we go, where I've gone since I was a kid. What do you mean you're taking away that place? Now, I know this is kind of a silly thought, but, but I hope that it helps us get into the mindset of what was going on some 2,000 years ago when Jesus was declaring, listen, that the place that the Jews held as a little piece of heaven on earth was about to be destroyed. This little piece of heaven on earth that the, that the Jews thought was, was so sacred that, that no one could ever imagine speaking against it, Jesus has been saying that that place is about to be destroyed. That, my friends, is fighting words to the religious Jews. And this is the heart of the reason why the Sanhedrin council has now arrested Jesus and they are ready to end his life. Jesus has threatened their most sacred of places, the temple, the temple that was built by hands. So I want to put ourselves in their shoes a little bit. If somebody came and told you, Walt, you're never, ever, ever going again to grandma's house in Arkansas. What? Uh-uh. You know what you're talking about. No, you're not. And I'm going to see to it that you're not. Oh, yeah? So I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of these religious Jews who, who are arresting Jesus and putting him on trial, wanting to kill him because he is threatening their most sacred place, the Jewish temple. I hope that as we look at this section of Mark 14 this morning, I hope that we see, as Jesus is being officially charged with this crime, I hope that we don't just read this account and just kind of have like a, a head knowledge of what's happening. My, my, my desire this morning is that we try our best with our mind's eye to actually see what's happening, to envision what's happening. My hope is that we'll see this very same God who... Be, became flesh, which is what the whole celebration of Christmas is all about, he is now standing with his created being charged with a crime that they hope ends in his death. My hope is that we see this very same God who created with his words all that is, and now he has entered the human race, and the goal of the Sanhedrin is to kill him because of the words he's now speaking. My hope is this morning that we see this same God who chose Israel out of all the nations to be a picture of his love for what we now know as the church. He is on trial by the religious leaders of Israel who have been chosen and they won't rest until this pestilence named Emmanuel is dead. So I don't want us to just read this and walk out and be like, hey, that's cool. But I really want us to see this trial with our mind's eye of what Jesus is going through. I'm not a good enough communicator to make that happen. I mean, I rely on the Holy Spirit in you to reveal to you the truth of what's happening in these few short verses. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 14, picking up in verse 53. Jesus has been in the garden. He's been praying, and Judas has come, and he has betrayed him with all of the the temple guard and they've arrested him and we pick up in verse 53 and they led jesus to the high priest 
and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Now, going before the high priest in this religious council that we call the Sanhedrin, it's very similar to going before a judge here in America and, and having uh, an arraignment. Okay, so they've arrested Jesus and they're immediately filing their official charges against Jesus in this arraignment of sorts. The Jew, the Sanhedrin were very, very powerful, but they did not have the legal right to put somebody to death. Rome had taken that responsibility, that right away from the Jewish council. And so they have to develop their charges against Jesus so that then they then present these charges to Rome in hopes that Rome agrees with them that this guy needs to die. And so Jesus has been drugged in front of the, these accusers, the council, this religious council, and he's being officially charged with a crime. But it doesn't go so well. Listen to this. Uh, well, before we, we get to the rest of the, the, the charges, there's this unique verse 54 that's just kind of thrown in here. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. Now, if you were with us three weeks ago, if you remember, Peter had just confessed and declared his undying commitment to Jesus. You guys remember that a couple weeks ago? Remember he said, where you go, I go. If you die, I die. If you go into flames, I go into flames. And he even was like, Oh, the rest of the disciples, yeah, I'm sure they'll turn their back on you, but not me. And Jesus says, well, you know what? Before the rooster crows twice, you're going to die me thrice. And Peter's like, no, never, you know, right? And then just maybe like two or three hours later, he's following at a distance, hanging out with who? The guards. Imagine how awkward that is. He's uh, hanging out with the very men that just arrested Jesus, and they are about to beat Jesus. He's getting all cozy with them, warming up by the fire to stay warm. This same Peter who said, I will go through the flames with you, is now just trying to stay warm in front of some flames. It's, just, it's very awkward, but it just reminds us again that this thing of what the work of Jesus was his work, for our behalf, on our behalf, not for us to protect. We can't. Our flesh is weak. So verse 55, we go back into the trial. So Peter's kind of on the outside. He's warming himself, and he can kind of see into the, 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 the backyard of the high priest, and this is what he is seeing. Now the chief priest, verse 55, and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Verse 56, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Uh-oh, <laughs> we got a problem, right? We got a problem. You see, there are specific rules in the Jewish court in order to convict someone of a capital offense punishable by death. Similar to America, there are certain rules that have to take place. One of the rules is that there has to be two separate councils, two separate trials and they both have to be done during the day, and the, the, the result has to be, the verdict has to be guilty in both trials. It's kind of like an appeals process. But there's only one trial in front of the Sanhedrin, and it's done at what time? At night. In the darkness of night, not even during the, during the time of, not even during the day. 
The second thing that these trials had to have is they had to have at least two cooperating witnesses. But they found how many? None. And the third thing that, that has to happen in order for a capital offense uh, punishable by death verdict is they, these trials could not take place during the Sabbath or during a festival or on the eve of a Sabbath or festival. And this is on the eve of Sabbath, right during the middle of the Passover festival. So from the very beginning, this is an illegal trial. We have to understand that. It's, being, it's taking place at night. There are no cooperating witnesses. And there's only one trial, not two. And they have, uh, they're doing it right before Passover, Sabbath, which is not the time permitted by their rules to even have the sort of counsel. So what do you do, think with me, what do you do when you have when you don't have a legitimate case against someone that you want dead? What do you do when you don't have a case? You make one up. You just create a case. You build it out of thin air. And that's exactly what the Sanhedrin tried to do to Jesus. Look at verse 57. It says, and some, some of the Sanhedrin, some of these religious men, they stood up and they bore false witness against Jesus saying, so here, here's their false witness. They say, we heard him say, quote, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. But even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, the only charge that Mark lists out of all the rigmarole, the he said, she says that they're saying out there, the only charge that, they, that Mark records against Jesus is that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. But even this charge wasn't corroborated by multiple witnesses. Let me ask a question. You guys are smart Bible students. Did Jesus talk about the destruction of the temple? Yeah, he did. Did Jesus talk about he himself being the new temple raised in three days? Yeah, he talked about that a lot. So my question is, what is so false about this testimony? Because Mark says that, verse 57, and some stood up and bore false witness against him. I read that and I say, what's so false about that? That's, Jesus said that all the time, but then I started looking exactly at what they said. It seems to me that the fallacy of their charge is that they say Jesus himself is going to destroy the temple. That Jesus himself, with his hands, is going to destroy the temple made by hands. But Jesus never said that. In fact, back in Mark 13, Jesus says that the temple is going to be destroyed by God who has ordained it to happen by this guy, this gal, this person, we don't really know as we're walking through Mark, named the abomination of desolation. And in fact, Daniel talked about that way back in Daniel chapter 9. That this abomination of desolation is going to happen and it's going to destroy the temple. If you weren't here when we walked through Mark 13, it's on our podcast. I recommend that you check it out to kind of see what Jesus is teaching about this temple being destroyed. So the false testimony, I guess, I suppose, is that Jesus did not say he himself was going to destroy it, but that God had ordained it to be destroyed and there was going to be someone else who comes to destroy it, named the abomination of desolation. 
So God the Father had planned the desecration, the destruction of this temple made by hands long before Jesus had come to earth. And Jesus himself physically is not going to destroy it. But the next question that comes to my mind as I'm looking at this is, why is this such a big deal? Why, why is this really such a big deal to the Sanhedrin that, that they are wanting to kill Jesus for talking about the destruction of a building? What's so, what's so important about that? And that's the root, I think, of what's happening in this trial. You see, the temple, please pay attention, in the Old Testament was the place where man and God met. I'm going to say that again really, really, really slowly because it's so important for the rest of the message. The temple in the Old Covenant was the place where man and God met. Because of sin, God could not and would not fellowship in any other way with man. The Jewish temple was the only place on earth where man and God met. The way it worked was once a year, the high priest would sacrifice specific animals to cover his sins and the sins of the people. And afterwards, he would walk into this portion of the temple called the holy of holies and in this place this is where the presence of god dwelt on earth and in this room this 1100 square foot room man and god met once a year in fact the high priest would even tie a rope around his waist around his leg in case he went into the Holy of Holies with still some sort of unconfessed sin on his behalf so that they could drag his dead corpse out and not have to wait for the next year for the next high priest to go in to the Holy of Holies. So Jesus has been prophesying against this treasured temple that's been built by hands where man and God met once a year. He was saying that this building is going to be destroyed and a new temple, not made by hands, is going to be raised up in three days. This new temple that he's been talking about, of course, is himself. Himself, not a building, but himself. Jesus is saying and has been saying that in his atoning work of removing sin, all of sin from God's people, Jesus in his resurrected life is now going to be the new place where man and God meets. Because of the completed work of Jesus on the cross, he himself is now where man and God meets. It's through his work through his sacrifice, through Jesus' death and his resurrection, that we who believe in Jesus are now meeting right now with the Father in Christ. So the temple building was a picture of the person to come, Jesus. The building was a shadow of Jesus who was yet to come. But now that Christ had come, there was no more need for a building. The shadow was not needed anymore because the essence was there. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, the building was a reminder of sin of the people because there was a constant sacrifice of sin at the temple even after Jesus. 
And so because it was a constant reminder of sin, a reminder of the sin that Jesus had taken away, it was always God's plan to destroy this temple because it was no longer needed. There was no longer a need for a reminder of sin now that Jesus had removed sin. And so a new temple was raised, the Lord Jesus himself. And anyone who is in that new temple is now blameless, not because of their work, not because of your work, but because of Jesus's work. So hopefully you'll see, you're seeing why this talk of Jesus referring to the destruction of the temple was so big, so problematic to the religious council. The priests, the Pharisees, the elders, the scribes, man, they had a lot to lose if their temple was destroyed. But who had the most to lose with the destruction of the temple? Let's think about this. Who had the most to lose with the destruction of the temple? Let me ask you this way. Who was the only person, who was the person who benefited the most from the religious system of the temple? Feel free to shout out if you've got an idea. The high priest. Think about it. Was it just any priest that could go into the Holy of Holies? Nah. It was the high priest. And he could only go in once a year, as I described a second ago. The high priest. The high priest, he's like the CEO of the priest. He's like the captain of the priest team, right? He's like, in elementary school, he's like the line leader, right? The the priest, he is the president of the homeowners club. He is the face of the club. So he, he has the most to lose, and it's impossible for us to really understand how much power the high priest had because of this role. It's impossible for us to understand how much power he had. The source of the high priest's power over the Sanhedrin and over the people came because he and he alone was the one who went into the Holy of Holies once a year. He's the high priest. He's the only one that meets with God. And so whatever he says, we do. Think of that power that he exercised over the Jews, over the council. No one ever met with God like the high priest. So if the high priest was going to let Jesus destroy this temple, then the high priest would lose all his power over the Sanhedrin, who lose all his power over the people, and he would no longer be the only one with whom God meets. So he has a lot to lose. Usually in these sorts of trials, the high priest doesn't say anything. He presides over it. But he is seeing how these junior prosecutors aren't getting very far, fumbling over their own words, and how they can't get corroborating witnesses. The high priest himself, look at this in verse 60, stands up which never happened he stands up in the midst and he asks jesus he gets in jesus's face he says have you no answer to make what is it that these men testify against you but he jesus remained silent and made no answer the high priest was getting frustrated he was getting mad that that this jesus they couldn't get witnesses against him to corroborate 
enough to kill him. And so he cuts to the chase through the he said, she said stuff. He gets to the chase and he just goes straight to Jesus to attack. He says, what do you say? And Jesus doesn't say a word. Why would he? Why would Jesus answer false accusations? I mean, if he answered false accusations, if anything, that would just give credence, credit to the false accusers. But I want you to see something that's really, really cool. If you rewind from Jesus and this council some 700 years, rewind 700 years, you'll find this book in the Old Testament called Isaiah. And in Isaiah 53, we have play-by-play recordings of this exact trial taking place. You say, well, wait, that, that's, just, that's just weird. That's just, that's just ridiculous. Listen, this is huge. And so God, throughout the Old Testament, he gave little pieces of what was coming with this coming Messiah. He would give little pieces of it to men. And these men, they would write it down. They probably had no idea what they were writing. They were just writing it down, saying, yes, God, okay, I hear you. I'm writing it down. And one of the things that Isaiah writes down in Isaiah 53 is this. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb being led to the slaughter, like a sheep that goes before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Man, to help us understand just how cosmic this event was of the Son of God hanging, suspended between heaven and earth, removing sin from people, God revealed pieces of this. Hundreds, even thousands of years before it even happened to get our attention today to say, hey, listen up, something huge is about to happen. And we have the joy of looking back into the Old Testament and watching this unfold thousands, hundreds of years before it even happened. And we can say, oh, my goodness, this is huge. So God is getting our attention. He's saying, listen. Something huge is happening. Everything is about to change. And it did. So Isaiah wrote some 700 years before this trial exactly what's going to happen. And Jesus did not answer. Just like Isaiah said would happen. He did not answer the false accusers. Well, the high priest is, he's further infuriated. And listen to this. He gets to this point here again, verse 61. The high priest asked him, are you the Christ? I can just see this man, you know, he's you know, with pomp and circumstance. Everybody thinks that he's the bomb diggity. And all, he's just getting so mad. His face is red because he's not getting what he wants. He always gets what he wants. He's the high priest. He's not getting anywhere. And he just cuts through. He says, are you the Christ? Because that's what I want to know. Are you saying that you are the son of the blessed? Are you, in fact, the son of God? What is your answer? Now that the right question was being asked, Jesus answers. How cool is that? The right question is now being asked, and so Jesus answers. Look at how Jesus answers. He says, I am. Now, if you were with us two weeks ago, Richard talked about this word, I am, in the Greek. It's ego, me. But it's the exact phrase that that 
God gives to Moses when Moses at the burning bush says, God, whose authority do I have to say this stuff to let the Israelites free from Egypt? Who's they're going to ask me, who, by what authority are you here to do this? And, and what am I going to say? And God the Father says, tell them I am has sent you. Just tell them that. And so Jesus, knowing that, obviously, he says the exact same phrase here, saying, I am. Now, Moses, here's what's so crazy. Moses, he went to Pharaoh, and he was a messenger of the great I am. But Jesus wasn't just a messenger of the great I am. Jesus was and is the great I am in the person of Jesus Christ. And so there's no coincidence whatsoever that he uses this phrase. But he could have just stopped there. But Jesus, he doesn't. He says, you know what, guys? You don't see who I am right now. You, you, you don't see the, the who I am in my power, in my fullness for who I am as, as deity, as God in the flesh. You don't see who I am, but you will. Look at this. He says, I am, verse 62, and you will see. You don't see it now. You don't see who I am now, but you will see the Son of Man, talking about himself, seated at the right hand of power, talking about the Father. And you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. You see, the central issue is that the Sanhedrin, they would not stand for this authority that Jesus says he's come with. When Moses told Pharaoh that he was acting as a representative of Pharaoh, that's one thing. But again, Jesus is saying that he is the great I am. So the Sanhedrin refused to see Jesus, and Jesus is straight up telling them, you will. You don't see it now, but you will. And when Jesus says that, that you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, I think that this is in direct response to the accusations about him destroying the temple. Now listen, I could be wrong with what I'm about to say right here. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, humble enough, man enough to know that I don't know all things. So if this is not accurate, delete it from your memory, okay? But here's what I see happening, okay? At times, clouds are puffy, white, and pleasant, aren't they? They are, aren't they? You say, oh, look at the clouds. Looks like, looks like uh, uh, Mickey Mouse clouds. They look like Mickey Mouse, right? Or they look like, you know, Snoopy. You know, you play that game, right? Oh, they, they, oh the fluffy little clouds. I bet you could bounce on that one, right? And when you're, you're flying in a plane, you come up above it, they just look so soft, you know? But is that always what clouds look like? No. No. Man, sometimes clouds are fearful, scary and downright frightening i remember one summer i had about 100 of our teenagers uh high schoolers uh, i was used to be a youth pastor and we were down in uh at the beach having summer camp and uh, you remember this april we were having a luau and we were at the pool right next to the beach and everybody was having fun and all of a sudden from the land side not from the seaside over the seaside i thought it would be a, a hurricane but from the land side man this this the most ferocious fearful uh, clouds just started coming our way and we knew that we were about to get it handed to us. And so we sought shelter and I'm telling you, it was one of the most frightening 
thunderstorms that I've ever been through in my life. If you've been through a hurricane, if you've been through a tornado, if you've been through a, a really crazy thunderstorm, like a derecho, whatever that thing even is, if you've been through that, you know that clouds are not always white, fluffy, and pleasant. You know that they can be fearful and full of vengeance. So again, I could be wrong, and I accept this, but I think that Jesus is directly referring to the fact that God's eternal plan was a plan of destruction of the physical temple that was going to come some 40 years after Jesus' death. It would make sense to me that Jesus is saying, you will see. You're going to see this with your own eyes. He doesn't say other people in other generations, 2,000, 4,000 years from now are going to see this. He says, you will see me coming with the clouds of heaven. So I see Jesus telling that though they don't see him for what he's here to do to replace the temple with himself, they will see the destruction of the temple one day. Some 40 years after Jesus's death, terrifying, furious clouds of fury came upon Jerusalem as planned by God again, according to Daniel 9, which is predicted long before, And this cloud of fury, listen, was the Roman army that God used, among many things, to totally destroy the temple building because it was a constant reminder of sin, a reminder of sin that Jesus had now done away with. So God removed this reminder of sin because God had totally removed sin from his people. If you're interested, and Jesus is actually quoting Daniel chapter 7. If you want to read that on your own time, feel free to. But it's, it, G, Daniel is doing the best he can just write down what he's told about this, what's going to come with the removal of the physical temple and the physical kingdom and the replacement with a new kingdom of God in this new covenant. So if what I'm seeing Jesus say is right, then they're going to see Jesus in his full authority, in his full power coming to destroy this physical temple in some 40 years. And to this, the high priest considered blasphemous. To the high priest, Jesus is saying that, first of all, he's saying he's equal with the Father, saying that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But then secondly, he is saying that he, that Jesus, is going to be the, used, the, the, the tool used of God to totally annihilate and render useless their treasured, prized, precious temple system. Jesus was saying that because of my death and my resurrection, listen, God is no longer going to meet with man in a place He's now going to meet with you in a person, talking about himself. Jesus is saying, look, the temple, it was a shadow of me. The temple was just for one person, one time a year to meet with God. What I've come to do by totally destroying sin is I am going to be the place. I'm now the person. My resurrected life, I am going to be now the place where man and God meet. And the high priest, obviously not wanting this to happen, (laughs) he's losing all his power. He says, 
that this is blasphemous. This is verse 63. He tears his garment and he says, what further witnesses do we need? Meaning, let's don't try to keep cooperating witnesses. We've got, we've got testimony right here. What's your decision? You've heard his blasphemy. And they all condemned him as deserving death. The council of the Sanhedrin finally found what they were looking for. A capital offense punishable by death. As I said earlier, they did not have the rights to to carry that death out. That's why we're going to see in a couple weeks them taking Jesus to this guy named Pilate for Pilate to uh, pronounce Roman judgment of death over Jesus. But in the meantime, they do what they can do, and that's where we pick up in verse 65. In the meantime, some of them began to spit on him to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. You see what's happening here? I don't want us to just fly past this. If you haven't listened to anything else, and this is really, really cool. Do you see why they're taunting him, making fun of him, saying, prophesy? Listen, they are making fun of Jesus for prophesying that the end of the temple is imminent. In effect, they're covering his face with a blindfold, punching him and saying, if you can't even tell us who hit you with a measly blindfold over your eyes, how can you look through the darkness of the future and tell us that the temple is going to be destroyed? Prophesy, Jesus. Growing up, I always thought that it was the rude, mean soldiers that were abusing Jesus in this way. But what does the Scripture say? And some began to spit. What's the contest? I mean, what's the context? Some of the Sanhedrin. Some of the scribes. The high priests. The chief priests. The the, the entire Sanhedrin council. Some of them. Jesus hasn't been handed over to the guard. That's, That's later in the verse. So the Sanhedrin are spitting on him. Blindfolding him punching him and taunting him, telling Jesus who thinks he's God and can see into the future to just simply tell us, hey, who punched you? You can't even do that, Jesus. Then how can you say that the future is bleak for this temple? This same Jesus who is about to be humiliated on a cross, the same Jesus who is about to be covered with the sins of men, is now here humiliated with the spit of men. This same Jesus who is about to be blinded for the first time ever from his Father once he becomes sin is here being blindfolded by the Sanhedrin. This same Jesus who is about to be plummeted with the full cup of God's wrath against sin is here being plummeted with the fists of men do you really think that these sanhedrin could do anything to jesus that would even compare to what jesus is about to face on the cross in a couple few short hours as he is crushed for our benefit and the verse ends and the guards received him with blows this word blows in english In the original language, it literally means, catch this, it literally means 
open-handed smacking across the face. Not closed hands. That's what the Sanhedrin were doing. They were covering their face and striking him. That means close-handed fist. But this word in the original language that we just read blows here in, in the ESV, in English, in the Greek, it means open-handed slapping on the face. Again, further humiliation. You can punch a guy and he'll get over it. But you know what you feel when you get open-handed smacked by somebody? Total humiliation. Listen to this. Against, for, for some reason, they are seeking to show dominance over Jesus. Jesus just said that he was going to be seen seated next to the Father. A picture of domination over all things. And right here, these soldiers, these guards are smacking him in the face, showing domination over him. Amidst all the humiliation, amidst the desertion of all of his followers, including Peter, amidst the false witnesses, the trumped-up charges, being spat upon, blindfolded, punched, teased, and now even hope-in-handed smacking, Jesus kept walking faithfully toward the cross. Why is he doing this? Why would in the world would Jesus do this? Well, there's many reasons. But again, I want to remind us of Isaiah. Again, some 700 years before this event even took place, Isaiah 50 says this. Listen to this. I gave my back to those who strike. And I gave my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I hid my face not from their disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. You see, 700 plus years before this happened, we get these play-by-play details all the way down to being spat on, beard-plucked, and, and being beaten. But through it all, Jesus' face was like a flint. It was set like a flint towards the cross. This means that his eyes were on the prize of what he had come to do. While what he was about to face on the cross was gruesome beyond measure, he always knew it was going to happen. This wasn't news to Jesus. He was prepared. He was ready. His eyes were on the prize. And he knew that in his death and his burial and his resurrection, he was now going to be the person where you and I now meet God. Here's our journey marker for the day as we wrap this thing up. If you're new with us, kind of journey markers, just put it all into a simple statement and marinate on it for the week. Meeting with the Father is no longer done in a place, but in a person. And how appropriate it is for us to be kicked out of our normal meeting place this morning. Because it's not about a place. It's about a person. 
Jesus. You see, the cross was always the plan. Even before sin, before creation, God knew that the only way for him to reveal the depth of his love, his grace, and his mercy was for him to actually one day become sin, the very thing that separated us from the Father. And he knew that he must die in our place. The Bible says that there's no greater love than one who what? Lays down his life for his friends. When, the old, when God created the old covenant that, that, that with Israel that we know of called the, the Mosaic Law, he did this to get the people to see that there is no way for us to remove our own sin, our, our own sin that separates us from God. This is why the old covenant referred to the law as the law was temporary. The law showed us that we cannot get to God on our own. In fact, the harder we try to keep the law, what happens? The more sinful we become. And this is exactly the Sanhedrin. They try and try and try to be as good and as holy and as perfect as they could. And they're now crucifying the Son of God. So what we're reading here in Mark 14 and Mark 15, this isn't the doings of some sort of mob just simply bent on killing Jesus. We are watching the unfolding of God's eternal plan to usher in a new covenant where he now permanently, listen, he permanently now meets with you in a person, Jesus Christ. No longer in a place, no longer in a building, but now in a person, Jesus himself. And so two, some 2,000 years ago, because of Jesus' death, he removed all of your sin from your account, even before you were born. And when you now trust him as your savior, his perfect life becomes yours. You are now in Christ. Whatever Christ is, that's who you now is. Whatever he is, you is. He is a son, you are a son. He is righteous, you are righteous. He is beloved, you are beloved. Because you are now in him. In him. In him. You know, I think about how the, temp, the, 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 the high priest, he would tremble as he walked into the Holy of Holies. Because what if just one sin wasn't confessed? What if just one sin of his wasn't covered by some animal? He would fall dead and then have to pull him out with a rope. Do you and I have to tremble in the presence of the Father? No. No, because Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. You see, on the temple, in the temple on the altar, the, the sacrifice would be totally burnt up, totally burnt up to ashes, and nothing would remain because the fury of God against that sin was greater than the sacrifice that was offered. But Jesus, three days later, rose victorious from the death because he himself was greater than the sin that was placed on him. Jesus himself is who we now, where we now meet with the Father. However holy, however righteous, however pure, however godly jesus is that's you now in christ somebody say hallelujah 
Because that's awesome, man. That's life. We fear not in the presence of God. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. His resurrection proves that He is the perfect Lamb of God. This is why Jesus' face was set like a flint. Unmovable. Unshakable. No humiliation of man. No desertion of Peter. No spit. No punches. No blindfolds. No open-handed smacks could ever deter him from the prize. Him becoming the place where you now commune with the Father. Could you? Can you see this Jesus this morning? And you see that he's not some overpowered, puny guy, but that he is the lover of your soul. See him this morning as, as he stood resolute with his face like a rock staring at the coming cross, not wavering regardless of what happened to him. See him as he's blindfolded and covered with the spit of men and the, and the blows of men, and the, but yet he marched undistracted towards Calvary. He knew what was awaiting him. This wasn't news to Jesus. He knew the pain and the sorrow he's about to suffer. But he did it so that he could become the place where you now fellowship with the Father. Meeting with the Father no longer is done in a place, but in a person. In all of it, in all of this suffering, it glorified the Father. Our band's going to come up and lead us in our final worship song. And this song is so appropriate for this morning. I think it's in the second chorus. The lyrics say something like, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of all the guilt within, of all the sin that I've done, does that happen to you like it happens to me all the time? All right. There's some people that are honest out there. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the sin, the guilt within. Well, that happens every day. Look at what you just did, Walt. Look at that. The lyric goes on to say this. When that happens, listen. Upward I look and see him there. The one who made an end to all my sin. Listen, the only way that you are in fellowship, in union with the Father is because of one Christ Jesus who came to put an end to the temple system and become now the place where you fellowship, where you commune, where you are united to the Father. Are you in Christ this morning? Have you trusted in what He has done? Have you transferred your trust from trusting in yourself, trusting in your own goodness, to now trusting in Jesus' goodness? Have you, have you changed your mind? Have you begun to believe in this Jesus who has done this for you? On January 5th, as Richard said, we're going to be baptizing. This is a celebration of, of seeing on the outside what has happened on the inside as we go into the pool, into the water, showing that we have been buried with Christ and our old man is gone. 
The sin guilt is removed and a new man has been raised. A new creation who's now in Christ. If you'd like to be baptized on the first Sunday of January 2014, how cool is that? If you want to be baptized that morning, let us know. Go to the website, sign up. If you've never been baptized since beginning to trust Jesus, we'd love for you to. We must trust Jesus. He is the person. There is no more a place built by hands, but there is now a person who unites us to the Father. Father, I thank you for this time. God, I thank you for this morning where we just sit and reflect and learn are revealed to this reality of Jesus' death. What He has come to guarantee. What He has come to usher in. That we now have life. That we now have freedom. That we now have everything that Jesus has. We are co-heirs with Christ. In Him. So, Father, I pray that we would believe this. That we would believe that there is nothing that could ever separate us from You. Things past, things present, things future. Nothing separates us now from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So, uh, Father, if there's any who are here today who are still putting their trust in themselves or, or even in a place. Hey, I go to church. And that's, not what, that's not how they meet you. It's only in Christ. Only in Him do we now commune with you. Only in Him are we now at peace with you. Only in Him do we now have you. So, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not trust Jesus, God, today may there be their day of salvation. God, if there's anyone here who is struggling, thinking that you still hold their sins against them, God, remind them that you will hold their sins against them as soon as you hold their sins against Christ yet again. That's not going to happen. It was done once and for all. God, help us to see that in Christ we have everything. Freedom. You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.